Hi, and welcome to the Vine Community Church Podcast. We hope that what you're about to hear will help you to flourish in God's grace and bear fruit through loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. Welcome, good morning. Um, I am so glad to be here with you all this morning. You may have noticed as you walk through the door, one, that you didn't have John greeting you, which is like a normal here at the Vine, right? Or another pastor around, and you're probably thinking, what's going on at this place? Is everything okay? It is. It's really okay, I promise. They left it to the youth pastor, so you should feel really trusted right now with what's happening today. Um, So I really am excited. What ended up happening is uh, we were sitting in worship review, and they all looked at each other. I'm on vacation that week, and I'm on vacation that week. And then the finger pointing went to me, and they were like, can you be here? I'm here, guys. I'm ready. Great. Um, so, no, that wasn't for a... <laughs> thanks, thanks. <laughs> um, so, and I'm maybe even more so excited. We're starting a new series this summer in 1 Samuel. So you, if you have a Bible, you guys can go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel. We'll be in chapter 1 this morning. And as we walk through the book of 1 Samuel, um, you may be thinking, if you know some bit about the Bible, 1 Samuel is about Saul and Samuel, obviously, and, and at some point in time, King David, and we will get to those things, just not in this series. So for the first six weeks of chapter or, or 1 Samuel, you actually don't see Saul, you actually don't see David, you will see Samuel some, but you're also going to see the story of a couple different people that you may not even know about that happen in the book of 1 Samuel. So we're beginning a journey through that book of 1 Samuel, and as we do, you're probably going to see this as a main kind of thread. Small acts of obedience or disobedience to God can lead to big impact and consequences. We're going to see that this morning, and you're going to see it in the coming weeks. But before we get into 1 Samuel, I think it's important for you to know, because Samuel is one of the historical books in the Bible that's going to walk us through the history of the Israelites, There's a book that comes before this now. This is going to be confusing. Uh, I'm going to talk about Judges, but if you were to flip back in your Bible, it's going to say Ruth, okay? Ruth is important, but in the chronology of this that we're talking about, Judges is what I'm going to mention here. Um, In the book of Judges, uh, we're going to see Israel being ruled by Judges, but that it's not going very well. There's this cycle thing that happens where God's like, I'm going to save you, redeem you, and give you back, and then they run away again, and then he does it again. And it's just like this cycle thing that happens in Judges. And to just show you how uh, poorly it's going, Judges 21-25, the last verse of that book says this, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So you can imagine if everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes, how poorly things are going. Or maybe you don't have to imagine very much, you can just look around. Which brings us with excited anticipation and trepidation to the book of 1 Samuel. The people of Israel are in complete disarray, dysfunction. If you read the whole book of Judges, like I just said, you pretty quickly see that this is just not it. It's just not it. Again, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone has dissolved to do what was right in their own eyes, which leads them into deep sin, disunity, violence, chaos. Again, maybe we just need to look around. 
They need a king to unite them, but the problem is that they already had a God and king, but they refused to listen and follow him. They wanted to be like the other nations around them. Again, sound familiar. We want to be like the other people. But now we come to 1 Samuel in the beginning of the transition from a system of judges to a system of kings. The people desperately need to return to God and unify as a people. They needed a strong, courageous, charismatic leader, which leads us to a very peculiar start to 1 Samuel. We begin with a random man from the hill country of Ephraim. His name is Elkanah. Uh, we also see his two wives in this first chapter, Peninnah and Hannah. Peninnah, as we're going to see in just a second, has lots of children. Hannah does not have any children. Um, <clears throat> and then we also see that Hannah is in deep depression and agony. We see that Hannah is uh, vexed in this moment. And then we also, at the very end, we'll see an elderly priest named Eli. And the main point for today that I want you to see in chapter one of 1 Samuel is this. Out of deep sorrow, the Lord can bring peace and accomplish his purposes. Out of deep sorrow, the Lord can bring peace and complete his purposes. So let's start in 1 Samuel Chapter 1, we're going to read 1 through 8 to start with here. Um, I'm going to read verse 1. I'm going to ask for grace. If you have better um, pronunciations for the names I'm about to read, I will be at the pastor's corner after service if you would like to see me. Um, let's start in verse 1. There was a certain man at Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. The name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up, that's Elkanah, year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and all of her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So in this passage, we're going to see first, um, I want to talk about Hannah's barrenness or inability to have children the significance of barrenness in this period of time, this was the main role, job of women, was to give birth to children. It goes all the way back to the creation mandate, go and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You see in verse 2 that he had two wives. We see that Hannah is named first, which probably means that Hannah was older than Peninnah. First thing that makes this difficult. 
And we see that she had children and that Hannah did not. Peninnah is also means fruitful. So her name alone is also a jab without even saying it. It would be like calling someone in our culture fruitful. Peninnah's name was fruitful. Hannah's name means grace or favored. And you could imagine being called the favored one in this situation, how much you probably hate that. Not feeling favored. And if this isn't mockery enough for Hannah, listen to the rest of this story, right? She goes up with Elkanah year by year to the city to worship and sacrifice. And when she does that, Peninnah, with all of her children, go. And while they're going, she's just jeering at her, provoking her, irritating her about the fact that she doesn't have children. Every year and every trip to Shiloh was a reminder to Hannah that she was barren. She would only receive a double portion for herself while Peninnah got multiple for all of her children. You can imagine Hannah, right, sitting around the table, having to watch as all the children piled around Peninnah, playing with Elkanah, and Hannah sitting alone having to watch the children giggle and laugh. And the greatest desire of her heart is to have just one. And this other wife has many. And all she has is some extra food. And to make matters worse, Peninnah is not gracious about the gift of children. It tells us often, and year after year, she would have to hear the provoking. I think if we were to maybe imagine the conversation with Peninnah, some of the kids, about the situation, it may sound something like this. Now, do all of your children have food? Oh, dear me, there's so many of them. Mommy, does Miss Hannah doesn't have children? What did you say, dear? I said, does Miss Hannah not have children? Miss Hannah, oh, right. She doesn't have any children. She doesn't want children. What, what do you mean she doesn't want children? Well, I'm sure she does. I'm sure she wants children very much. Wouldn't you say so, Hannah? Don't you wish you had children too? Well, doesn't daddy want Hannah to have children? Oh, he certainly does. But Miss Hannah keeps disappointing him. She just can't have kids. Well, why not? Like any kid asks. Why? Because God won't let her. Does, does God not like Miss Hannah? Well, I don't know. What do you think? Oh, by the way, Hannah, I don't know if I've told you yet, but I'm pregnant again. Year after year after year, this went on, baiting Hannah, irritating her, winding her up until sobs broke out, goading her to complain against God. And if this isn't already enough, we go another step here and we see Elkanah try to comfort her, but obviously in vain. This feels like such a guy move in this situation. Look at verse 8. 
Elkanah, her husband, says, Hannah, why do you weep? Really? And then he goes further. Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? And then he asks one last question, just to put a nail in it. Am I not more to you than ten sons? You know what he does? He says, I see your issue and I'm going to make it about me. He asked, am I not more than 10 sons? Am I not enough for you? You know, he was trying to help, but a total misread of the situation. He didn't understand that Hannah was feeling isolated, shameful, and without purpose. He was making it about himself. John Barry says, in the ancient Near East, husbands were essential for a woman's survival, but children brought them honor. What Hannah felt without children was only shame. To have no children felt like shame. And this is what Elkanah could not see. And to make matters worse, to keep going down, Scripture tells us the Lord closed her womb. Wait, wait, wait. So now you're going to tell me that God's responsible? How does that work? Well, didn't, didn't God tell her to have children? So what is going on here? Why is he doing this? You know, Hannah's not alone in this struggle or story. In fact, she is with prestigious company when it comes to the Bible and the biblical history. When God is about to use men mightily of God, it comes from a mother who has spent long seasons of barrenness. To show you some examples, we could look to Sarah in her old age giving birth to Isaac. We could see Rebecca with Jacob and Esau, Rachel in the 20 years before she could have children and gave birth to Joseph, Manoah's wife who gave birth to Samson, and then in the New Testament, we see old Elizabeth giving birth to John the Baptist. Hannah shared in this fellowship. Now, I want to pause here and say this, though. This is not a one-to-one correlation today. I know that I'm pointing out how God has used situations like this in the past. And that's all I'm trying to do. But as I'm doing that, I also want to acknowledge the room. And I want to say, if you are currently in a season like this, I am so sorry. My heart breaks for you. My wife and I have walked through short seasons like this. I know others who have walked through longer seasons. And I'm not telling you this morning that I have the answer to why. But what I hope that I can give you this morning is a God that can bring peace. Even if your circumstances don't change. Maybe this hope and comfort could be to you God's plans seem to almost never be in line with ours. But he sees the whole picture. We see one brushstroke of the paint. I want to read this quote as an encouragement from Dale Davis. God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point our hopelessness and our helplessness with no barrier to his work. 
Indeed, our utter incapacity is often the prop he delights to use for his next act. This matter goes beyond the particular situations of biblically barren women. We are facing one of the principles of Yahweh's modus operandi, our modes of operation. When his people are without strength, without resources, without hope, without human gimmicks, then he loves to stretch forth his hand from heaven. Once we see where God often begins, we will understand how we may be encouraged. God uses painful sorrow and turns it to joy. He redeems our stories. The barrenness of Hannah is this, only one instance of the level of sorrow and pain that we could feel. This is when people are out of options. It's only then when we're out of strength and know-how and workarounds and all figured out that God chooses to work. For some of you this morning, God is beginning his work. It might be painful now. You might be in a season of great sorrow. You don't remember a week that hasn't gone by where tears haven't swelled up in your eyes. There's been many nights where you've laid your head on the pillow and you just couldn't do anything but cry. Trust me, God is at work. It's not hopeless. You're only seeing one brushstroke to the larger painting. I want us to look at how Hannah in this moment chooses to respond to this barrenness. The ridicule, the comments from her husband, and the feeling that the Lord has closed her womb. How does Hannah respond to the sovereignty of God? Hopefully we can learn how we can respond to the sovereignty of God from Hannah's example. You know, Hannah could have easily uh, retaliated to Peninnah. And all of us sitting in this room would have been like, I'm on Hannah's side on this one, right? Jeer back at her, retaliate, say something mean, tell her how much Elkanah loves her more than her. She doesn't do that. She could have also found hope love, satisfaction, and a man. She could have said, yes, your words are enough for me. Or she could have also wallowed. She could have sat in her circumstances and said, woe is me. Does anyone remember me? Does anyone care about me? I'm worthless. She doesn't do any of those things, though. How does Hannah respond to the sovereignty of God? She comes with all of her mess and she throws it at the feet of the Lord. Could she have found comfort, short satisfaction, and all the other options? Sure. Could we find comfort, short satisfaction, and having all the other options to try to deal with our sorrow, pain, trial? Sure. But there is only one place we find peace. And it's in the presence of God. You know, she doesn't do any of that. She goes to God. And I love her heart showing magnificently here. She is keeping her faith. She trusts the faithful one. She knows there is nowhere else she can go and receive what she will from the Lord. We're going to look at her response next. But before we do, I want to ask us, Simple question. 
Where do you go when God brings trying and difficult circumstances in your life? Where do you go when God brings trying and difficult circumstances in your life? Do you retaliate? Do you find it in the love of another relationship? Do you wallow? Woe is me. Or do you go to God? Throwing all of your mess before him to find peace. We're going to see Hannah in this awful situation go from passivity to action. Look at verse 9. It would be a verse that you would probably just fly by if you were reading this chapter, but it's so important as the hinge point of this chapter. It says, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, two massive words, Hannah rose. Now, you may be thinking, well, of course, she was sitting down, and so she has to get up. Why do you need to tell us that? It tells us that because it shows that Hannah goes to action Hannah rose. Hannah is done letting life continue to beat her down, drive her further into depression. She rises. It is in this text because it's an important turning point. But what action? She prays. How often do we not see prayer as action? We see prayer as just an add-on, a sticker we slap on the I can do it, or just something we're supposed to do. We often don't see prayer as action. Her prayer of action is going to lead to peace, though. I want y'all to see that from this passage. So the next point is Hannah's peace. We're going to start in verse 9 here to keep reading. It says, Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed the Lord uh, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. You know, we can learn a couple really important things about prayer here from Hannah. Hannah's prayer, if you see it here, is messy. It's undignified, filled with tears, yearning, deep desire in her heart. It's demonstrative, so much so that Eli thinks she's drunk. Probably sounds like the way you pray, right? My first thought was, mm, not me. If I saw this in the street, I might assume that this person is a screw loose or is one of those wacky Christians. But then I thought back over my life, and I was like, that's a lie. I know this position of Hannah. I know what it's like to have tears unending. I know what it's like to face sorrow and pain. 
I know what it's like to come to God and be gibbering without phrases or words to be even saying. I know what it's like to have an exhausted spirit like Hannah. So what can we learn about prayer from Hannah? Well, I think one is that we're way too uptight about the way we pray. We want to do it the correct way. We want to say the right things. We want to use the right words, have the right phrases so that God hopefully will answer us or at least we don't look dumb to the people we're praying in front of. Hannah didn't care about looking dumb. So much so that people thought she was drunk. That's my challenge to you. (laughs) Pray so messy that people are like, a little bit too much, right? That's the way Hannah prayed. How beautiful to watch the messiness of a prayer where someone is just pouring out the depths of their soul before the Lord. Too many of us either care about the way we look or how, how we sound in prayer. Some of us are actually afraid to embrace our emotions. We have stuffed our emotions so far down that our relationship with the Lord looks nothing like this because we don't bring emotion to prayer. We pray very robotic. The Lord is asking for us to pour out our hearts like Hannah. Bring the mess. You know, I think we need to pray more often like children. You know, when a child asks for something, um, they're not looking for the right words or the right phrases, right? They're just annoying. <laughs> right? That's a, that, they, they can't even, it's like gibberish. And you're like, what do you want? Or if they're hurting and in pain, what do they do? <laughs> right? That's what kids do. I think we need to do that more. I think we need to pray like children. You ever been there? I have nowhere else to go or run to. I know you are God. And I think I'm just going to need to sit here and cry. Because the distress is too much. You ever been there? It's just me in a mess at this point, God. How much longer? How much more pain? Will you remember me? Remember me. Hannah believed this about her God, that he is sovereign and present. Every word from her mouth was confirmation after confirmation that she still believed in the faithful covenant-keeping God, even though he had not given her what she most desired. Tim Chester says the cry of prayer is a cry of faith. It arises from the belief that God is a father who is able, meaning he's powerful enough, and willing, which means he's loving enough, to answer Now, we notice what happens to Hannah as she's praying, right? Some more things to take from this. She makes a vow. And I think what's really interesting here as I was studying this passage is, you know, in prayer, typically we're very good takers. I want to take, 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 take in prayer. And yet Hannah here asks so that she could give. 
She says, if you give this to me, I want to give back to you. How often do we ask for something so that we can actually give it back to the Lord? Because the truth is, everything that you have is a gift from him. Even up to your children. We also see that Eli grants her petition before the Lord and says, go in peace. And in this moment, she finally eats and her face is not sad anymore. Peace comes back to her and she starts to eat again while sorrow fades. I want you to notice something important, though. Hannah is still not pregnant. So why is her disposition changing so dramatically? She asked God for favor and reprieve. You know, it's kind of funny that the favored one is asking for favor. But notice this about Hannah's ask. While she is asking for a child from the Lord, look at verse 11. She says, I vowed a vow saying, the Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord All the days of his life, no razor shall touch his head. You know, she mentions servant three times in this prayer. What a posture before God. That we are his servant. She also asked the Lord to remember her. Do you ever call God on his promises? Can you actually remember me like You promised? She also says, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. What she was vowing here was that she was gonna give her child back to the priesthood. Hannah had a posture of understanding that every child is a gift from the Lord. She just wanted to play a part in the purposes of the Lord by having a child. This wasn't about significance, it wasn't about fulfillment, it wasn't about enjoyment, it wasn't even about selfish desire. She truly wanted a child for the purposes of God. You might say, well, how do you know that? Let me explain to you again with a vow that she took if she were to have a son. That vow would mean this. Once the child is weaned, they would be given over to the priest and more specifically the Nazarite tradition for the service of the Lord. Which means she would not be able to spend her life with this child. Except for maybe once a year to go up to see him when she goes up to the temple. She truly wanted a child for the purposes of God. The asking and full yielding to his plan then brings peace. She understood again that a child is not a right we get, but a gift to be received and given back to the Lord for his service. The children that the Lord chooses to give us is not a right. Each one is a gift to be given back to the Lord Yielding in this way brought peace to Hannah. Verse 18 says, And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. What brought Hannah peace was not change of circumstance, 
but in her posture and prayer before the Lord. While she was still without a child, her heart was in full dependence and trust upon the Lord. It reminds me of Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Hannah's peace came in prayer before a mighty God who cares for her. Not in circumstance, people, comfort. Prayer does a miraculous thing to us. It brings us peace. Something about throwing our desires before the Lord and then yielding to his plan brings peace. Why? Because it positions our heart before a holy God. It allows us to run with abandon to his feet and with every request we may have and throw it all before him as a mess. And in those times we find peace. Like Hannah, we find peace in the presence of God because God is unshakable and a firm foundation. And as we present our requests before the one who knows all and cares for us with an everlasting love, we find peace. So out of deep sorrow, the Lord can bring peace. Now comes the most beautiful and awe-inspiring part of this chapter, in my opinion. The Lord remembers her. Out of deep sorrow, the Lord can bring peace, but he can also accomplish his purposes. So look at verse 19 and 20. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The, the word remember here is often used in the Old Testament in connection to God's covenant relationship with his people. It's connected to moments where God remembers a person but more widely remembers his covenant promises. The same is true here. The Lord remembers Hannah and his covenant promises all in one moment. Now it's not an... Now it's not as though God is having a moment of Alzheimer's here. He didn't forget about his covenant. All he's saying is by saying, I remember my covenant. It is not gone. It is not fading. It is not lapsed. It is not ended. My covenant that I have given, I will be faithful to. So when it says that God remembers her, it is out of his covenant love for his people. He sees Hannah personally, he hears her words, he desires to do something, he loves her, he remembers her. And in remembering her, Samuel is born. God is keeping his covenant with his people. The importance of this birth is personal to Hannah, but it's also covenant to Israel in its meaning. Samuel is going to be the bridge between judges to kings He's going to be the one that ushers in unity to the people of God. He's going to be the one that brings us to King David, but even more so brings us to King Jesus, the greater King David. Jesus, that's going to bring righteousness and unity to the people of God. 
You know, if we think back to Jesus and the story of his life and the journey to the cross, what great days of sorrow and anguish he must have felt knowing where he was going. We see him in the garden greatly distressed, and then on Good Friday, all of his followers distressed and not sure what's happening. But God was accomplishing his purposes. Out of the greatest sorrow came the greatest peace. God was accomplishing his purposes for the sake of the covenant he made to Abraham and David all the way back in the Old Testament. Jesus was the greater King David, Hannah was the key bridge, and Samuel to the kingship of David, but ultimately to the kingship of Jesus. But again, remember, all she, she saw was a brushstroke to the larger painting. Out of deep sorrow, the Lord can bring peace and he can accomplish his purposes. You may be thinking, that's for other people, that's not for me. And if you're thinking that this morning, then you're in good company with Hannah. Nothing about Hannah was special. God uses her. It's not about the religiously famous or moral elites. It's about people who found through prayer and faith a strong anchor in the Lord through the darkest of storms. Robert Bergen says this passage teaches us the true power cannot be found in one's position in society, but one's posture before God. Who made a difference? It was not Eli with his power and position. It was Hannah with her posture before the Lord. Hannah alone understood the true power of undivided faith in the Lord. Never count out a person who has a posture of faith before the Lord in prayer. The Lord uses the weak, the outcast, the average, the impotent, the stumblers to accomplish his purposes. The Bible and church history is littered with examples of this. Out of deep sorrow, the Lord can bring peace and accomplish his purposes. Okay, that's great for 1 Samuel. What about today? What about coming off a long work week, maybe a long weekend, going into a long work week? What about for me? What does this mean for me? Well, the first thing I would want to ask is, are you currently doing what is right in your own eyes, like the people in Judges? Are you living your life under your rules, your control, your kingship, doing what's right in your own eyes? Or are you finding peace in the king of kings? Are you, is your deep sorrow pointing you to God? Are you finding peace in the presence of your savior? Are you praying messy? I want to encourage you to not be passive in your sorrow, but to be active. Pursue the Lord. It doesn't have to be pretty, put together, or even with words that make sense. Because most of the time, they don't when we're in pain. Pursue the Lord. Hope in this. You and I don't see the painting either. Your life is a brushstroke in the painting that God is doing in his kingdom. Hannah's story gives us hope that it's not just in circumstances that we can find peace, but it's in prayer. 
So for those of you in here who are hurting right now, my heart for you is that the Lord will give you peace in prayer. And I hope that he will answer the circumstances that you want, that he would remember you. But until he does, that you would find peace in his presence. And that God that we would find, the master artist, that that God would accomplish his purposes for your good and for my good and for his glory. We are not going to have um, communion today because there's no pastors here. Um, <clears throat> but in place of that, I've, uh, we're going to have a confession of sin and assurance of pardon here. And then after that, I'm going to give actually a time to practice what I've been talking about. We're going to have a prayer time in here. And uh, I'm going to encourage you to pray messy, to pray your sorrow, to pray, pray your pain, Bring whatever it is on your heart to the Lord. And I'm going to pray that we find peace maybe even this morning in that. Before we do that, I'm going to have us read the confession of sin, assurance of pardon. So we'll read the confession of sin together, and then I will read the assurance of pardon. Blessed Lord Jesus, before that cross I kneel and see the heinousness of my sin, my iniquity that caused thee to be made a curse the evil that excites the severity of divine wrath. Show me the enormity of my guilt by the crown of thorns, the pierced hands and feet, the bruised body, the dying cries. Thy blood is the blood of incarnate God, its worth infinite, its value beyond all thought. Infinite must be the evil and guilt that demands such a price. Sin is my malady, my monster, my foe, my viper, my chain that holds me captive in the empire of my soul. Sinner that I am, why should the sun give me light? Yet thy compassions yearn over me. Thy mercy bore my deepest stripes. Let me walk humbly in the lowest depths of humiliation, bathed in thy blood tender of conscience, triumphing gloriously as an heir of salvation. Psalm 103, 8 through 12 says this as assurance of pardon. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Amen. I'm going to go to prayer time, and after a little while, I will come back up and close us in prayer. and enjoy it. Uh, invite you to pray before the Lord now. Thanks so much for joining us for this podcast. For more information, you can visit us online at thevinecc.com, download our mobile app, or visit us on Facebook or Instagram at thevinecc. Have a great week.